Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we continue on with the Roman Empire now, moving from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire in our fourth podcast about Rome in its entirety, again, from roughly 700 BC to, depending upon how you define the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 AD. Prior to this, as we remember in some of those other podcasts, we were looking at how Rome almost came to be a minor city-state in the grand scheme of things had Hannibal and the Carthaginians got their way. But we know that Hannibal in the end was defeated. We then saw the rise of Julius Caesar and how Rome, Roman citizens, especially the Senate, would have no tolerance for self-appointed dictators. And then we move in to the age of Octavian or Augustus, who is going to bring Rome from a large republic to eventually a massive empire, again, covering 35 current countries, one of the top three empires in the world, along with up there with the former Soviet empire and former British empire. So what do we see then in the age of Rome? Why did Rome, like Athens, Greece, really more, more so want to consolidate rather than conquer? Consolidation has a buy-in from the people. In fact, we can see that in some cases, the outsiders in the city-states between Greece and Rome, in some cases, were knocking on Rome's door to be able to fly the Roman flag and were willing to pay the Roman tax in order to do so. So what about Rome in this burgeoning age of empire was so attractive to these nations of people throughout the known Roman world? First off, we're going to see is the fact that Rome was, as we talked about with Greece, the ancient Greeks, there are no doubt that they were the thinkers. They were constantly lo looking to improve. And it's not to say that Rome didn't, but Rome was by and large along the lines that if it's, bro if it's not broken, don't fix it. But that's not to say that they didn't in any way, shape, or form experiment themselves. And one of the ways that they were able to do so was to provide to the world a substance that is all around us that we perhaps don't even think twice about, and why should we? Because concrete is, well, just concrete, former cement that has hardened now into formed concrete. But that's a substance we get from the Romans. They knew the difference between, if we want to look at it today using today's terms, brick and mortar. They understood, and it's not that the ancient Greeks didn't, but the Romans wanted to build and build to last. So they understood the difference between, again, harder and softer rock-like subst rock substances. They were the ones that understood that rocks, as hard as they are, are actually quite porous. Water and humidity can get in there. Rocks, bricks, mortar, when exposed to different temperatures and different humidities, expand and contract. No, we don't see it with the naked eye, but they were smart enough to know that it actually did that. 
And that's the reason why their brick structures had what we would call today the mortar in between. For those of us that own brick houses, every 20 to 30 years or so, we need to get our houses what they call tuck pointed again. To put that mortar back in there between the bricks, as simple as that job may look on the outside looking in, it's actually quite difficult. And you have to know what you're doing when you're mixing that mortar substance. Because again, the mortar allows the bricks to expand and contract, but in such a way that allows the structure to continue standing without ruining or risking its structural integrity. Every time the sun beats down on it on a 95 plus degree day with high humidity, six months later, depending upon the climate you live in, could be 10 below zero. Those bricks throughout those months have expanded and contracted. And each time a tiny bit of that mortar in between those bricks was loosened and fell out. Over a couple of decades, we have to repack that. The problem, folks, is if you attempt this at a do-it-yourself job, and I'm all about trying new things myself to try to save money, tuck pointing is not one of those things you want to do if you're not 100% confident that you know what you're doing. Because in re-tuck pointing a house, if you create the tuck pointing, the mortar mixture, stronger than the bricks, it's the bricks that will begin to fall apart rather than the tuck pointing or the mortar in between the bricks. And before you know it, you are now permanently, irreparably ruining the brick structure because the bricks will begin to fall apart rather than the mortar. Again, the Romans understood this. They faced the outside of their structures for better durability. They were the first ones not to have a stadium, but to have a dome stadium with a canvas top that could be closed off to keep the people protected, the spectators protected from the sun. The floor of the Colosseum, one of the largest and most notorious of the Roman stadiums, could be flooded for water events. Speaking of water, the Romans also knew that if you want to get your neighboring city-states to want to fly your flag, one of the things that you can provide them is a constant source of water. With all of the Roman aqueducts that we are aware of that still survive today, we estimate that roughly the 300 million gallons of water was delivered a day to people throughout the Roman Empire. That would be roughly 200 gallons for every man, woman, and child. One and a half million cubic yards of water per day. That would be enough to supply 11 grand scale baths, 900 public baths, and over 1,400 fountains and swimming pools. New York City uses a little bit under that amount every day, and that's a population of 8 million people. What else we see in the Roman houses that was different than in the ages before Rome? We're also going to see that the Roman structures on the inside start to become a little bit more complex. The Romans were the first to experiment, not with creating a heat source within a home, the typical fireplace hearth with a raging fire uh, uh, keeping the citizens warm during the cold months. They also had a way of piping or ventilating that heat to other areas of the structure. They, the Romans, were the ones that threw on to the engineering books for future civilizations to improve on the idea of a furnace and central heating system. If one central heating source 
if the if the heat that generates from that one source in a given structure can be piped or vented to other areas of the structure, the Romans then could start building these thing called walls within the structure. And instead of every wall simply having an accessible entryway, could actually have a door on it, providing complete privacy to the occupants within. No different than our, our what we call HVAC system, the heating, ventilation, air conditioning system, also still coming from one source within a house that is able again to be distributed to all the rooms within the house. Can you imagine trying to heat the house and not have one vent or one register? Every room outside of where the furnace was located would become too uncomfortable too fast depending upon the outside temperatures. How could this information about these heating systems, the aqueduct systems, be communicated to people throughout the former Republic and now burgeoning empire? Well, you simply pick up the latest edition of the Acta Diurna, or translated to English, the Daily Doings. It was, to our knowledge, the first national newspaper. As minor as that may seem, well, what's the big deal about a newspaper? The fact of the matter is that people in all parts of that empire could be up to date with what was going on in other parts of the empire. And that's where these inventions and improvements also could be communicated. Along that line, too, were some sections of the newspaper now and as popular as the other sections. That being, of course, who owed who money. It would be in the public ledger that would be available in the back sections of the daily doings. And this is where we see this idea of slavery coming about. It's not, again, that it didn't exist before the Roman Empire, but a Roman citizen, any Roman citizen, outside of perhaps a senator or the dictator of Rome or now emperor of Rome, could find themselves becoming a slave. But slavery was not due to prejudice. It was not because of nationality, and it certainly had nothing to do with skin color. If citizen A was a slave to citizen B, that meant that A owed B money and wasn't able to repay it in the terms that were agreed upon. Now, it might not make sense to say, wait a minute, if one man owes another man money and he becomes a slave, well, then how does the money actually get paid back if the slave's not being paid? couple of ways. One is the fact that the man who owed the other man money could actually be doing work for free to work that bill until it was paid. If that wasn't possible, it was not out of the question for the man's wife and children to act as slaves for the person that gave the loan until the loan was paid off. So again, as mentioned in the Bible, slavery was definitely around but it was not, again, because of nationality or skin color. It's not to say, of course, that women and children and even some men were not sold into slavery when one part of the empire might have gone to war with a neighboring nation. That also predates the Roman Empire. But slavery within the empire, again, that was for, for financial reasons, not because of prejudice of nationality or skin color. We also see coming out of Rome is an, uh, something that's largely only kept alive today in by Halloween and Hollywood, and that's the toga, what they call it, the 
uh, sorority and frat houses around the college campuses, the idea of a toga party. It was more of a service garment than anything else. And the color denoted one's positions in society. In the Senate, how the toga was worn, in other words, which shoulder, indicated how one was going to vote. So it was a garment that communicated a lot of things. And that, again, we see carried on throughout, as we'll see in the Middle Ages and even in the world beyond. The last part that I want to discuss, and mind you, I'm not even hitting the tip of the iceberg with what Rome has to offer to the civilizations that come after it. But I'd be remiss if I did not also explain that within the age of the Roman Empire, we are not only seeing a lot of inventions, but we're also going to see the demise of a massive institution that is going to, again, go by the wayside or in some cases change considerably. And that's the subject of religion. Rome, like the Greeks, had their own form of mythology. Each god or goddess was responsible for its own little area of responsibility. But the way mythology worked, whether it was Greek mythology or Roman mythology, was largely the same way. Here, essentially, was the common characteristic, common denominator with Greek and Roman mythology. As long as you worshipped the right god or goddess for the right reason at the right time, you could expect to please them and get what you're looking for. But let's quickly review that. As long as you worshipped the right god, goddess, for the right reason, at the right time, you could expect to please them. The Romans really didn't care whether you paid homage to the god or goddesses or not. As long as you kept the Roman law, paid the taxes, you could follow whatever religion you chose. However, that didn't apply the larger and larger the empire eventually expanded, as we know. If you don't believe me, just ask the Jews. Now, Rome eventually did have problems with some monotheistic religions, but by and large, it was the age of mythology that kept people occupied. But let's create a situation in which a woman is going to pray and pray and, and do homage and, and offer sacrifices for a very, very important reason. She lost her husband to a dreaded skin disease. Her son and her daughter now have that same disease. So she gets on her knees and she, be, she is making sure that she is worshiping the right goddess. And she knows it's for the right reason to save her children. And she's hoping it's the right time. But her children die anyways. How does that distraught wife, how does that distraught mother try to reconcile the world around her now? She lost her husband. She lost her kids. And maybe a few days after she buries her last child, she sees evidence of that skin disease now affecting her. What does she assume she did wrong? Did she choose the wrong god or goddess? Did she choose the wrong reason? Was the god or goddess maybe thinking, hey, you're being selfish? She doesn't know. Or was it the wrong time? Again, there's no playbook that spells this out. So for that reason, the world of mythology as fascinating as it sounds to have a huge menu of all these gods and goddesses that you can pray to to get what you want, 
when you don't get what you want, that massive menu can become extremely frustrating. So is it really any surprise that a young man on the eastern side of the Mediterranean world, born to a carpenter and his wife, grows up, and by the time he is roughly 30 years old, embraces the Roman citizens and says, where I come from, my father is the only God you need to pray to. There is never a wrong reason, and it is always the right time. Think how appealing, think how inviting, engaging that would be to distraught Roman citizens who may be lost loved ones, found themselves in jail, or lost a crop, or got fired from their jobs, or got into a fight with someone and lost. And here's a man saying, no, no, forget that menu of gods and goddesses. My father is the only one you need to turn to. Any reason that you're speaking to my God, my father, is always the right reason. And again, there is never a wrong time. Who was this Jesus, son of Joseph, a common carpenter? That's what we're going to begin to look at now, and we'll continue on in the next episode. So, Jesus Christ, we study him unlike other gods or goddesses in the ancient Western or Eastern world, we do study Jesus for the same reason we study Muhammad or Will in a future episode or podcast. And the reason being, of course, is because these were human citizens that walked the earth at the time that we are studying and in the places that we are studying, right? So for that, we're going to look at Jesus, this life of Jesus Christ and the impact that he made. Because again, whether you are a practicing Roman Catholic, Muslim, Jew, agnostic, an atheist. You are impacted by the life of Jesus Christ. There's no two ways around it. If you don't believe me, stick with me. So let's start with his birth. We really don't know when Jesus was born. We don't have a pinpointed year. It's the later Roman Catholic Church that will dominate the Western world that will create a calendar that will retrospectively be designed so that Jesus was born in what then is referred to as the zero year. We not only don't know when Jesus was born in terms of year, we also have no clue why we celebrated in the month of December, because we have no idea what time of the year he was born. We just don't know. Why then do we relegate it to the end of December? Well, because if you add that to the new year, you get two weeks off in most jobs. Okay, well, maybe not. But we're going to find that out why, again, we celebrate this birth of Christ on December 25th. So let's get back here to this birth. Again, as I say, zero offense if you're not a Roman Catholic, you're not a Christian, and, and you know, you're not familiar with the, the, the birth story, you are going to be familiar with it because of the way it's echoed throughout the month of December and early January in many parts around the world. We know that Joseph and Mary were on the road when Mary was about nine months pregnant and ready to deliver. Now, you have to ask yourself, Joseph, what's going on there, buddy, in that mind of yours? Your wife is nine months pregnant. She's going to deliver any day now. 
and you decide to get the wild idea saying, hey, honey, let's go on a road trip. Yeah, let, let's, let's take a trip away from home. Let me just pull up the Cadillac and we can put the heated seats on in the back there so we can make you real comfortable. Yeah, that's not exactly, the, of course, the way they were traveling. Now, Joseph is throwing Mary on the back of a donkey saying, here, honey, comfortable there, honey? Good. Can I get you anything? All right, well, let's let's hit the road here. No, that wasn't exactly the reason why Joseph was hitting the road. Joseph was required by law to return to his hometown so that the Roman census could be taken. Mary was obliged to go with him. Hence the reason why when they arrived to Bethlehem to go back to the place of birth for the Roman census to be taken, that's the reason why there were no rooms at any of the inns or the precursor to modern day hotels and motels. It's the reason why, again, he would be born in the manger, but going back to the Jewish scriptures is the reason why he would be born, quote, surrounded by commoners, end quote. So again, that's the reason why Jesus and Mary were on the road, why he would be born on the, on, in uh, a manger, why we see the nativity scene of this massively important historical figure and religious figure that we would think would be born in the utmost of elegant castles or types of buildings like that. And no, he is born in the equivalent of a modern day barn. Other than the one story about Jesus at the age of 12 teaching in a synagogue, and again, I'm trying in my interpretation explanation here, I'm trying to keep this as much to the historical record rather than the religious record, because this is not a world religions or a Roman Catholic podcast. It's a history podcast. So other than the age by the age of 12, where we see that Jesus was pulling away from his mother and father in teaching, in fact, deviated from the trip that Joseph and Mary were taking to go to a synagogue to pray and to teach, when Mary came back to him and grabbed him by the shoulder and said, essentially, what are you thinking? We're on the road here and you're taking off in an opposite direction. You made your mother and father angry. And Jesus looking up at her saying, and hey, my father is very happy with what I'm doing. And they didn't, understood what, they didn't understand what he meant. So other than that one episode about when the age of 12, we really don't know much about the childhood of Jesus Christ. We certainly know nothing about his teenage years. And having three kids of my own just entering their teenage years, that could be for a good reason. We also nothing, know very little, if anything, about Jesus in his 20s. It's only when he is about anywhere between the ages of 28 to 30, dependent upon your timeline, do we see this historical figure come into the presence one more time and get onto the historical record? So what we're looking at now is why did this commoner, this Jesus born to the likes of a carpenter and his wife, why would there be such hatred for him by the Roman elite and the Jewish elders? And that's what we're going to take a look at here. We know that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. He would be sitting there amongst the commoners, amongst other Jews praying, and would be led or taught by the Sadducees or the Pharisees. But then in many cases, they would pose something to the audience that they would not be able to answer, but Jesus could. And then Jesus would go on to explain it. But wait a minute, the Sadducees and the Pharisees say, hey, where's that guy get off? Talking about those kinds of things, 
when he's born to a commoner and has no real education. And that's the truth, folks. For all we know, Jesus also was illiterate. There's only one recorded episode that Jesus was writing something, and that was in the sand. And we don't know what he was writing. But we also have nothing left from him in terms, obviously, of anything recorded that he said, but also there's nothing recordedly written from him as well. So where the hatred began to start burgeoning was out of jealousy by the Jewish teachers and elite that looked down at him for attempting to teach them. That might have been able to be tolerated by simply keeping him outside the doors of the synagogue. But the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is that the commoners were beginning to follow Jesus. Now we have an issue. The other issues is that he routinely ate with sinners and tax collectors. When questioned about this by the Jewish elite, he turned to them and said, quote, He who is without sin may cast the first stone. End quote. And of course, we have the popular joke that a stone comes flying out of nowhere and everybody turns around and Jesus says, Mom, please. All right, enough already, right? But no, that didn't happen. It's a funny story about, again, that line, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. He also routinely spoke with a married woman as well as single women. Samaritans, a group bred from the Jews and Assyrians who lived in Samaria. And the Jews said, no, it was taboo to communicate with them. Yet Jesus did. Jesus also garnered an extremely loyal following which we would call the apostles. Jesus Christ, or Greek for Messiah, would choose the 12. Those successors of the 12 would expand and are known in the Roman Catholic Church today as the cardinals. Every cardinal is a successor to the 12 apostles. So let's look at, again, this group. Let's flesh this uh, group out, these groups out who were against Jesus. You hear about them, again, not so much in the uh, story of the birth of Christ that in around Christmas, but rather the death of Christ and the rising again it called Easter. We hear about these common groups, the Pharisees. They considered themselves to be pure. Thus, they could not include some groups such as Gentiles. They were extremely strict group that insisted on following the law right to the letter. The problem with the message of this Jesus, this Messiah, is that his message was all-inclusive. That doesn't work well with the Pharisees. The other group was the Sadducees. This is the group that had the most political influence. Notice I did not use the word power. They had influence. There was no political power anywhere in the Jewish world. The only group that held political power were the Romans. They, the Sadducees, had no problems with the Gentiles, thus they were hated by the Pharisees. Okay, wait a minute, so you get the Pharisees and the Sadducees that hate with one another. Yeah, absolutely. But why do we read about those accounts or hear about those accounts that they were on the same side? Because your enemy's enemy is your friend. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees found out that both groups had a problem, they momentarily united in order to defeat that problem. In other words, to get rid of this Jesus. They also thought, the Sadducees, that they were smarter than the Pharisees, in that they were going to trick Jesus into saying something that would either be blasphemous, 
which means that he could be persecuted through religious means, or he would say something illegal. And the Roman political hierarchy would then nail him. So they approached Jesus. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, you seem to know more than most of us. And notice I didn't say all of us, but most of us. And you know, we, we're holding on our hands here the Roman coin that the Romans say is to be used to pay the Roman tax. So we have a question, Jesus. Should we pay the Roman tax to our higher-ups or shouldn't we? To them, it was a foolproof trap. Because if he says pay the Roman tax, then Jesus is breaking a religious law by saying the Roman government is more important than the Jewish religion, than Yahweh. That is a religious taboo that he would be breaking. If he said, don't pay the tax, we got him too, because he's breaking the law. They're going to get him no matter how he answers, except again, they're not thinking as he does. They're thinking as humans. So Jesus looked at them read their minds, and said, show me the coin that, this, that is on this Roman currency. Show me the face on it. And they did. And who is that? Caesar. Then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. Darn it. How did he manage to sneak through both extreme answers that in their minds were one of the only two that he could have given. That is what would give get the attention of the Sanhedrin. And when we come back, we're going to look at this group and how they would be drawing up the case against this Jesus, not to turn around and kill him, but to turn around and report him and hope that the Roman government would be the ones to put him to death. And which is not commonly known, is exactly what happened. More about that in the next podcast. So thank you for listening. Again, go to my website, ceconsola.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments or book recommendations. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.